Welcome. I'm Farrell. And I'm Rhonda, and we're with Prophetic Appointments, and we are going to be studying the Old Testament with you for Come Follow Me 2020. Two. Two. 22, yes. Life moves on. Uh, <laughs> anyway, remember, the former things of old. That is going to be our theme in this presentations of the Old Testament. We're actually going to use Isaiah 46 kind of as our theme marker. And that is, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I just wanted to look in Helaman chapter 8, because Nephi, when he's trying to teach the people about the coming of Christ, he actually says that, there were prophets before Isaiah that prophesied these things. He says in Helaman 8.14, Yea, did he not bear record that the Son of God should come, speaking of Moses? And then he goes on in verse um, 17 to Abraham, declaring that Christ would come and rejoicing. And then I love in verse 18 that it says, But there were many before the days of Abraham who were called by the order of God, Yea, even after the order of his son. And this was shown unto them a great many thousand years before his coming. And so even before Abraham, before Isaiah, even from Adam, we learn in the Pearl of Great Price that all of, all of them have testified of Christ, even from the beginning. How about from the first word? That leads right into what I'm going to do here. Remember this concept of declaring the end from the beginning. That is what our theme really is right there. So being said, the end from the beginning, what's in a word? This first introduction to what we're going to do actually completely has blown my mind. Well, the way I introduced it in one other situation is I said, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And sometimes one man's treasure is another man's trash. I hope you find this treasure like I do, because I get excited about this. This is absolutely incredible stuff, but it is a little deep, so put on your thinking caps. Prophecies of the end from, from the very, the very beginning. beginning. Just in like fact, said. when I say what's in a word, you don't. I don't think you comprehend that I'm going to spend this whole session on one word. It's going to blow your mind. Okay, so... This word in the beginning that we see in the Old Testament in Genesis 1.1, it actually is translated from a single Hebrew word, Bereshith. And that single word is going to absolutely astound you. So that word in the ancient pictorial Hebrew looks like what you see on the screen there, which is a pictorial language of ancient Hebrew. And always remember that Hebrew goes from right to left, not from left to right, like we're used to. In fact, all languages east of Jerusalem go right to left, and all languages west of Jerusalem go left to right. That's a fascinating Actually, thing in and of itself. It points to to Jerusalem and to, to a prophetic picture all by itself. So modern block Hebrew, it looks like this. It's pretty, you know, not necessarily as pictorial as the old ancient pre-Babylonian captivity Hebrew. And when we look at the pre-captivity time of Babylon, we realize that it almost looks prehistoric. How about that? Prehistoric. Anyway, uh, that word. But actually, I find it 
easier to understand myself personally because I'm a picture guy. I actually flunked out of seventh grade in English, you know, so I, I, I'm not a real, a really good English guy, but Hebrew makes sense to me a lot better many times because it's pictorial. And that ancient language is actually three languages in one. So before I move on though, I wanted to hand off to Rhonda and have her tell you a little bit our approach in the fact that it's going to seem from time to time like one of us, one or the other of us have kind of taken the majority of the narration. And that's true because we can't both prepare every single come follow me. Yeah, what we decided to do is one of us will kind of take the lead for each of the lessons and the other one will just be a little bit of the commentator and, and because we want to keep it short and in the time frame that we have. So we don't want you to have the expectation that we're that we're going to be 50-50 every single time in yeah, this particular lesson. It would be nigh into impossible to keep bouncing back and <laughs> forth and keep flowing. In this particular lesson, Farrell has done an incredible job of putting together the prophecies of the end time that are embedded in the first word of the Bible. This is going to blow your mind. But before we move forward with that, I think we should also maybe give some credit to C.J. Lovick and yes, his work most at definitely. Rock Island Books because he kind of started it this direction. Oh, for sure. I mean, he actually did so much work on that that it, it just blew my mind. The only thing is he made some very fundamental errors. And... Um, I wanted to correct those errors scripturally. I don't. I don't want to personally correct them. I want the scriptures to correct some of those errors. And it actually adds to what he did. It just yeah. Makes and it, what oh he did gosh. is no disrespect intended whatsoever. I'm my hats off. This ancient pre-Babylonian captivity Hebrew, which is pictorial in nature, is it's very natural more for me than surprisingly enough sometimes than what I find English rules, which are. <laughs> You know, <laughs> he makes I before he, he accepts up his own words. Yeah. You, you'll learn that. I'm kind of a, I kind of spoke my own way. So anyway, that being said, um, Hebrew is pictographic, meaning that each letter is is a picture, and it's symbol which forms ideas and words or words. It's also numeric, meaning these twenty two pictograms also are numbers with meanings which form ideas and words. And in Hebrew, that's gematria, is when you work with the, what, the number value of each letter, and, and it's going to blow your mind when you yeah, see some of that. It's incredible, but it's also a phonic language. It's the oldest phonic language in the world. For instance, you think alphabet, our alphabet, right? Well, the first two letters of Hebrew are aleph, bet. Those are the first two letters. So where do we get most of our language? It goes clear back to the beginning. So this word, in the beginning, Bereshith, in the Hebrew, Bereshith, it is so incredible when you see it break down. So I'm just going to start with the first letter. And in this first letter that's in the word Bereshith, it's bet. It has a numeric value of two. It represents the floor plan of a house or a tent or a tabernacle. So it really also kind of indicates being in it. It's being in the house or in the tabernacle. So this, it could even be in a temple. Or in essence, it, it begs the question, who is in the tent? Who is in the tabernacle? Why? What's going on here? 
Well, let's just go to the next letter so that you can find out who is in the tent in Bereshit. The next letter is Resh. And Resh, numeric value, is 200. And it represents, I mean, you can even look at the picture and kind of know that you have a man there with a crown. So who's in the tent? We know that it's the head prince. It's this, it's this one to inherit. It's the person who is in the tent is princely. This princely person who is in the tent, you have to ask yourself, what does these things come to being? Well, 200, the number for Resh, represents the all-sufficiency of God. And when you put the bet with the Resh, and you go bet Resh, or pronounce bar, what you have, the word, is sun. So the bet Resh, or the sun, is in the tent. So this is kind of like a word game where you're making smaller words inside of bare sheet. Yeah, you actually have s several, well, you're going to see multiple layers of words within the word which describe its meaning, which is absolutely blow your mind. And just to be super clear, we'll say it again, the word bare sheet is translated in English in the Bible in the beginning. Yeah. So we're working with the very first word. Yeah, this is just the first word that we're talking about here. So he is someone's son who is in the tent. He's also the head prince. So we have now that there's a, a home, maybe a heavenly home, and someone's son is in the home. But he's a princely son who is in the tent or the tabernacle. So that being said, we have to beg the question, whose son? Whose son is in the tent? Okay, if, if we have somebody's son who's in the tent or in the tabernacle, whose son is he? Well, we have to go to the next letter, Aleph. He's Aleph's son who is in the tent. Well, so who is Aleph? Aleph has a numeric value of one. And it stands for a an ox, or the picture is kind of, of an ox. You can kind of see that in the symbol, in the ancient pictorial symbol there. And it stands for a strong leader. So this number one is the strong leader. He is the first. Well, it's the first letter in the next word in the Bible. So the first word is Bereshith. The second word is Elohim. So it's Bereshith Elohim. So when you put that together and you realize that the Aleph is the first letter of Elohim, it, it kind of makes it more clear that, that Aleph is God that's in the tent, or that is the son, he's in the tent. But just for a second, I'm just going to go yeah, I was through. I going to say, tell him what Elohim does. Yeah, so just cool. for a second, I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to describe Elohim. Elohim, Aleph, which is the strong leader. Then we have the Lamed. Did I say that right? Lamed. Lamed. That's how I say it. Yeah, you say it we better than me. We don't spoke Hebrew <laughs> We don't spoke <laughs> But that's okay. Lamed, which is a staff. And that staff that, that he's holding is a staff of authority. In fact, sometimes equated with Aaron's authority. But in this instance, it's the staff of authority. And then the third letter is hey. And that hey is a man lifting his hands. And it's to reveal or behold. And then we have the yod, which is the hand, the hand that does a mighty work. 
And then we have the Mim, which is the waters. So if I was to read that Hebrew name Elohim by meaning, it would be the strong leader with authority reveals the mighty work of the hands over the many waters. So in the very name Elohim, and don't get me wrong, I'd like to spend more time in this in a later session perhaps, but this very name Elohim is the very creator himself. It's, it says he's the creator because he is the, the mighty, authoritative, who reveals the mighty works over the waters. Isn't that Genesis we're talking about now? As he beholds over the heavens and he beholds over the waters. Now there is more we could go into that that Joseph goes into in the King Follett and many other places, but that's going to have to be another day. And you can find the <clears throat> King Follett discourse in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, right? Yeah, exactly. So God the Father, the strong leader, the sovereign first creator, God is the Aleph. So now we know that when we add that third letter to, to the word, now it's another word. The first letter was home. The second letter was, when we put it together, it's son. It's the royal son. Now we've added the third letter. Now we're talking about the word for creator or created. It's, it's another word. It means created. So now we have to say that in the home, the royal son and of the created one, or the creator. So that just brings us to the next question. If it's Aleph's son who is in the tent, and he's the head prince, now we have a story building. Right in the first word, we have a story building. The son of God is in the tent. The son of God is in the tabernacle. He's in his heavenly home. He is Aleph's son and in his heavenly home. Isn't that amazing? You so, know, if I can interrupt you real quick, it's also fascinating that in the Book of Mormon we talk about Lehi dwelling in a tent. And there is an implication there in the Hebrew that it's in a heavenly vision. It's being in the tent, is being in communication with the Lord. So. It's, there's so much there with, with being in that tent. The Shekinah glory. Yeah. Under the Shekinah. Under the, yeah. Well, that's pretty good. Anyway, that word um, for bet resh is pronounced bar and it's sun. And the, the word that is bet resh aleph is bara, which stands for creator or he who created. So, so far, we have just looked at the first three letters of this word and we have found three layers of meaning within the word. So now, let's take the next letter, the sheen. The sheen represents, or the number is 300, but the sheen, which, well, let's just go to the 300 for a minute. The three is divine. We know that the Godhead is three. But when you add two zeros to the three and make it 300, now we have divine perfection. Divine perfection is just a beautiful concept that the sheen is. However, when you think of divine perfection, you don't think of it as being teeth to press down and to crush and destroy. That seems almost counterintuitive to our minds. But when you think about it, God has told us, He chasteneth he who he loveth. 
So God's signature letter is actually the sheen. It signifies his ownership. It actually is his claim, but it's his claim with power. So kind of what you're saying is if you were going to represent God and who he is in his majesty and in his authority, you would just, the letter sheen all by itself is, is kind of a stamp of his authority. Yeah, it's, and kind of, it's kind of his signature put on it. Yeah, exactly. But when you put the Resh Aleph together and you add sheen, what we now have with the Resh Aleph sheen is we have the spelling of the word Resh. You know how you can have a letter T, but then you can spell the letter T. Well, this is the spelling of the letter Resh. So it's kind of the long form of Resh. With a head. With a head. So when you have the spelling of Resh, you realize that now he's separated the Resh from the home, from the bed. And now it starts to beg a question. The prince has come out of his tent. He's come out of his tabernacle. That heavenly heaven place, of his home. presence of God. So the prince has come out of his home. And it asks the question, why has the prince come out of his tent or out of his tabernacle? Well, is it to be crushed and destroyed? Or is it to crush and destroy? Or maybe both? Well, to answer that, let's just move to the next letter. The Yod. The Yod, whose numeric value is 10, it signifies to give added spiritual significance, a hand doing a divine deed in and of itself, if you start to think about it. Now, I, I, I'm just going to take just a moment. I'm just going to go this far and no farther. When you look at these symbols, if you are a temple goer, just think about it. Anyway, added signif spiritual significance, a hand doing a divine deed, one of four sacred numbers, meaning ordinal perfection. We know what one is. One is the first. One is the Aleph. But when you add a placeholder behind it, it usually is to add significance to whatever the one was. So usually when you add this placeholder behind one, it usually relates to time. A so, multiplier. Of a multiplier. Yeah. At the time appointed, the Moed, the Son of God, has come out of his heavenly house the tabernacle to complete, I'm going to add a word, the mighty work of his hands. The mighty work of his hand. So, at the appointed time, the Son of God has come out. Something amazing will unfold at an appointed time, the Moed, that marks the end of one age and the beginning of a new one. And this, this marker is going to be where everything focuses and, and it's kind counts of a, from yep. before and after, right? Kind of yeah. Like. So he, the son, he is the he's being the first fruits of the new beginning. He's actually going to create this new beginning. Now when we look at the Tav, whose numeric value is four hundred, all of a sudden this picture got to be really clear. The Tav is a very known symbol. Of course, we think of it as a T, but it really, it's a cross. It, 
let's let's just go to the number 400. It's a complete offering. When you think of 400, you think of Christ's 40 days in the wilderness and then with added significance. You think of the the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness without its significance. In Gematria, the number 40, um, the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, the 40 days of rain in Noah's Ark, any time you see the significance of the number 40, it's representing a trial that ends in victory. So that concept, complete offering, a trial that ends in victory. Think about even the 400 years Israel was out of the land. That it was in Egypt, and then it was in its wilderness journey. And then they were born as a nation. And then they were reborn as a nation, the victory you're talking about. So this divine deed ordained in heaven will fulfill a covenant and be revealed as a sign that is literally pictured as a cross. Everything that has happened before this sign was sovereignly ordained in order to set the stage for this one single event. I don't know if you realize the significance. We're just talking about the first word in the Bible. The very first word in Hebrew. Pointing to the cross. The cross, over point of all human history from God's perspective. So really what what we're seeing here is him telling the story in this pictorial situation of the cross. So now we know this crossroads event is literally represented by the cross. Now, we've seen the majesty in the word so far, but what if it actually told us when? What if, what if this covenant of the Yod Tav, the Sheen Yod Tav, is a sign of his covenant? What if it actually tells us when? Now, we know that in Gethsemane, He was under the weight of the sheen. He was crushed under the weight of our sins. He experienced something that we can't even comprehend. And then the Yod Tav is where he did a mighty work of his hands on the cross. In that crushing. Right after the crushing. So this, this moment in time now we are seeing the relationship. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to divert for just a half a second here and I'm going to tell a story that's very recent and very real to me. I recently had one of my sons um, borrow my vehicle without asking me. <laughs> and, you know say that. Then... He was with his friend and he ran into a fence because a deer ran out in front of him. And he came to me and he's, you know how that, you can expect how he would feel. He's kind of sheepish and he's kind of trying to be really repentant. And I remember at that moment wanting and needing to, to help him and, you know, kind of help him atone for his actions. And this particular car was parked because I had it uninsured. <laughs> I, it was not being driven because <laughs> it was not insured. And it was it was sitting parked. And, and I thought to myself, oh, I want to help him out here. But the price has a pretty big price tag. And I was like, 
ooh, this hurts. This would really hurt. And I remember this conversation, just having this conversation. I have these conversations. And I said, you know, this is kind of tough. I want to atone for him, but this is this really hurts. It was easier for you. You're God. And boy, did he answer me right back instantaneously, right to me. And he says, what makes you think it was any easier for me? And I got instantly called to repentance. Because I all of a sudden realized, no, it wasn't easy for him because he's God. It hurt a lot. And I thank him. So the key to this event, the key to this event is in the numeric value of your Tav. Tav being a offering of dying completion and the yod is God's divine multiplier. So when we put 400 times 10, it equals 4,000. So now we have a timeline that the Tav event, irrespective of the dates you think that the crucifixion was, is actually predicted in the first word. This Tav event, we now know based on the 7,000 years from mankind. Let's just lay that out. We realize that in DNC 77, he tells us very straight up, the 7,000 years are pointed under the earth for the temporal existence of the earth. Now that doesn't mean the earth didn't exist before 7,000 years. And I'm gonna explain this more thoroughly here, but a day for a thousand year perspective is a millennial day's perspective has been around a long time and it's repeated in Joseph Smith and it's repeated in the Old Testament. There's Peter. In Peter, the New Testament. I think there's an Old Testament. Well, it's in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, yeah, Abraham, there we go. It, yeah. it's, in, it's in the Pearl of Great Price version of those stories. Anyway, seven is a repeating cycle. <clears throat> God has revealed that his... From his perspective, each day of creation was as a thousand years. A thousand years is a day from his divine perspective. Now, I know that there are many points of view, and I'm not going to take that discussion up for this moment, even though I would love to sometime. But the divine perspective on time, you've got to realize in the book of Abraham, he says that throughout all the creation events, the time was not appointed under this world yet. So... Time might not have the exact same relationship to pre-temporal existence of the earth and post-temporal existence of the earth. Anyway, seven being a sacred number demonstrates divine completion. So if we just take this for its word and we take and place that at the 4,000 year mark, which I believe very clearly is stated in Barashith, by the exact symbolism in the word and the exact numeric calculations. Okay, so just just in summary here, what we're saying is that because you take the 400 and you times it by the multiplier, the 10, you've pinpointed that will be the marker of when the, the head... Cross of it. Yeah, the head does the mighty work with the crushing. Yeah, well, and I'm going to go into that right now. I'm going to actually lay that out. If you look, Christ's ministry, 
began about 2930 AD just for now just take that as my word and that that the Passover event his crucifixion was 33 AD just take that for my word for now I'm gonna actually nail that a little stronger a little later but let's just hit this for now and you just start to lay this out the Son of God comes out of the temple the tent and from the beginning from from the creation events from the Aleph to the atonement and the cross, we've now said, is created by the Yod Tav multiplier. So this mighty work of both the Father and the Son who offered up, or the Father who offered his Son at this cross event is actually defined in the words numerically, or in the letters numerically. And it's at the 4,000 year mark that this cross event took place. Now, I don't know if about you, but I'm already in awe. How does God create the end from the beginning in the very first word? I mean, that is just... Well, and just in layers, one layer after next Yeah, and I'm just peeling back the onion. telling the story, right? Guess what? I haven't even hardly got started. And peeling back the onion of the first word. <laughs> and, and the point is, you know, one, one time when we were doing this lesson, someone said, um, you didn't make it past the first word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it's like, just, all of this is in the first word. And, and we're like, and he had tears it, in his eyes. It all is in the first word. It is all in the first word. So let's just, let's just lay this out on timelines. So day three, there is creation, had to be... If you just do the simple math of a thousand years for a day, and you do the math, day three is when the earth actually took form or started to the take land. form. The land and the waters were kind of getting divided out. and It was starting to take form. That's previous to 9000 BC. That's Genesis 1, 9 through 13. Then on day seven, according to the book of Moses 1, verses 3 through 8, man is placed in the garden previously to 4,000 BC. So, but that's the creation side of things. So when did the temporal existence of the earth start? Okay, pause for a second. So I think I just figured this out. So what you just said was that he was in the garden before 4,000 BC because the 4,000 is the temporal existence and he hadn't fallen yet. And that when he falls, it'll be a temporal existence. So he had to be before well, and yeah, you know in the, in the book of Moses that it says he was placed in the seventh day of creation. Right. Okay. Right. So if you read the book of Moses in Which is a way to find another discussion. Three, yeah, it's time. an incredible discussion. <laughs> three through eight, you realize that he actually was placed in the garden in in the seventh day of creation. Right. Well, we'll, we'll say it this way. Everything that was organized and established and created in six days played out on the seventh day. The six days was the spiritual creation. And that's a pattern of prophecy that we're going to talk about over and over again. Yeah. So the six days of creation. So what we're really saying is he actually was in the garden sometime before 4000 BC. But the temporal existence starts when at the fall. Yes. Well, particularly, I'm going to show, Adam and Eve partake of the fruit approximately 3970 BC, Genesis 3, 6. But I believe that 
from the time he partook of the fruit, he had not yet been kicked out of the garden, obviously, right? The Lord hadn't now. And we have a tendency to play this out in our head on an overnight scene, you know, like the Lord instantly came and played this out on an overnight scene. But that's not necessarily what happened. These things sometimes take time. And Adam was naming the animals. He was doing a lot of things going on in the garden. It wasn't just. And I think when you read that that Christ was the second Adam, you realize that their missions probably paralleled time-wise. And this, That's is, conjecture. this is kind of speculation. Yeah, right? this is a little yeah. conjecture. But yeah. this is it's the part... It's interesting to think about. Yeah, it is interesting to think about. But this part I don't think is conjecture. Because if you use the word Bereshit, you realize that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden in 3967 B.C. in order... Well, unless you don't believe Christ was crucified in 33 AD, in order for the word Bereshit to work. So you're for saying the prophetic it, word to work. That's what it it would have had been, what did you say, 3963? Yes, 3967. 3967. 3967. Yeah, do your math. 3967. Yeah. Yeah. You're the math guy. <laughs> I'm the English guy. Girl. <laughs> I'll let you be a girl. Okay. I'll let. Anyway. I actually kind of like you being a girl. Okay. <laughs> I think we're good with that. Okay. So, what, what we're saying is that it would be 4,000 years according to this prophecy that we see in their sheet yeah and it actually years. plays out because in order to land what was the bishop that predicted 4,000 usher bishop. bishop usher actually did a calculation yeah. based on the genealogy. genealogy of the patriarchs and all that different things and he came up with a creation of time of 4004 but what he really meant by that is that's when adam was placed in the garden which actually happened before temporal existence of the earth because he had not been expelled yet right. so that 4004 if you think of it even if he's right and i'm not saying he is but even if he's right then he wasn't expelled right then he he, he we don't know exactly how long he was in the garden right. but based on dnc 77 i can equate that he was in the garden until the fall and when he was expelled that is the beginning of the temporal creation and I, and of the earth and all of this matters because of the prophecy that we're exactly. looking at right now so well and, and if it was 4004 then the timetable moves up which is isn't happening therefore you know that's not a fair assumption we know that the temporal existence of the earth based on the crucifixion You'd say approximately, I'm going to nail it. I'm going to say it's 3967. I, I absolutely believe that. Now, that does not mean that's when Adam was placed in the garden. I believe that he was placed in the garden prior to that in the seventh day. So, what I'm saying is, is if you go with my date of 33 AD Passover, that 4,000 years prior to that is 3967. But what that date is, is the date they were expelled from the garden in Genesis 3.24. Beginning that temporal existence of the earth. So. Okay. okay. Has God fulfilled his word? Has he fulfilled the word? The word Bereshit? Did the Son of God get crushed in Gethsemane? And did he do a mighty work of his hands on Calvary, the Yod Tov? Well, yes, I'd have to say he did. So on the first layer, we have an absolute beautiful prophetic picture in the very first of the word of the Bible. But there's more. <laughs> Famous saying of 
that he would, that he would, <laughs> but there's more. <laughs> that, the, so that that prophecy being that he would come after four thousand years. Yes, right there. He's established. Well, I would say at four thousand. So because God is precise. Yep, God is precise. Right. So the next question that has to beg: Do you think this word? first word might tell us when and where but we're going to hit the when first do you think it might tell us when hmm what a concept in the beginning the plan was revealed but when was the crucifixion I, I say 33 and you're going to go well scholars they're all over the board well let's just use scripture to answer the question because you know if you've, if you've actually watched Daniel Code 1, you know that I nailed this with Daniel's number. But we're going to do it with a focus in a different direction this time, just so that you have a different direction, and this one's quicker. And and the reason that we're doing this is because this is kind of like the X marks the spot, which is it's, actually... It's a crossroads. It's it, a cross. It's another definition of Tav, actually. It's a yeah. really true cross of the road. Cross point. Cross point, exactly. Not only the cross... In time. In time, Exactly. Okay, so let's just evaluate the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So, in Luke, it tells us that the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar was the beginning of John, the son of Zacharias, mission. So, John the Baptist begins his mission in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, many times in the past, they've speculated all of the board when... When Christ was born. No, yeah, and when they didn't know. But in the last hundred years or so, it seems like scholars don't update their material. But in the last hundred years or so, we actually know when Tiberius' reign was. Because they found a coin that dates his reign. Exactly. So anymore, it's, it's not speculative of when that is. You can go onto Wikipedia and tell yeah. you exactly when You can when find is. exactly when that is. And his reign starts September 18th, 14 AD. So now we have a date. But that's the end of 14 AD. It's September. Right, and this is in the 15th year of that reign. So that's going to be like 29? Yeah, so in essence, you're 29 years later. At the year 29 is when who began there? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. So we're not even talking Christ yet. So 14 AD plus the 15th year of the reign is approximately be, puts Christ because Christ was at least six months later. And I say at least six months later because scholars and everybody always have this bad habit of taking the first possible date that is possible and making that the date. And usually that's not true, because the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar went all the way from September 14 AD to 15 AD. Right, so it was a whole year. So yeah, you got a whole year. There's more of the year in the year 15 than there is in 14, so it's more likely. Because it started in September. Exactly. It's more likely that, that John began his reign, in fact it's speculative that a lot of people think, but I actually kind of lean that direction, he actually started at the Tabernacles in the 1580 so I, I'm gonna nix that because we don't we can't back that up right now but what we'll say is this just we'll take say, the average 
So what you're saying is that there's a 75% chance that the ministry started in the in the early 15th year. Or in 15 AD. In the, yeah. So there's a 75% chance that the his ministry started in the early months of 15 AD rather than the very end months Rain. of 14. you got to add 50, to the 15th year of the reign, so now we're in 29 that John began his ministry. Okay, so we got to summarize it one more time so we get this right. So in summary, what we're saying is that there's, it's more likely that John's ministry started in the 15th, 15 AD in the 15th you keep, year. You keep saying 15 okay, AD. You Let summarize it. it. Okay. okay, let's get this straight. <laughs> one nice it's more summary. likely that Tiberius's reign began in 15 AD, and if you add the 15th year, it's more likely that John's reign began in the latter part of 29 AD. Therefore, if you just take the, the latter part of 29 and add six months, that put Christ about the year 30 AD, that his ministry began. So if we want to, just for discussion's sake, let's go with the earliest possible date so that you can see how this puts together. The earliest possible date would be the end of AD 28, because if you take 14 AD plus the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, it would be the end of 28. So let's just say the beginning of 29 is the earliest possible, okay? So if we take that and we go forward, you'll see how this fits together. Okay, now let's begin with how old Christ was at that time. Now, all the people were baptized, and it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, and he prayed, and the heavens opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in, a bo in bodily shape like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. That's the part we probably should have just gone straight through and saved time. Anyway, so we know that when he begins his ministry, his baptism anyway, that he's about 30. Okay, so let's just keep that in the back of your head. And let's go to the Book of Mormon. Lift up your head and be of good cheer, for the time is at hand, and on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world. So we know that this sign was obvious. And then if we move forward and, to... And it wasn't a time period, it was a day. It, it was exactly a day. Exactly, they knew yep. when. This sign is the day. Now the Nephites begin to reckon their time from this period when the sign was given and from the coming of Christ. So we now know that they reset their calendars just like the Mid-Eastern nations. So we now know that their calendar has been reset. Now it came to pass according to our records and we know our records to be true. For behold, it was a just man who did keep the records, for he did many miracles in the name of Jesus. And there was none that could do any miracles in the name of Jesus, save they were cleansed every whit in his, from their iniquity. So that's right there a humbling thing to think that sometimes when we're not experiencing miracles, maybe repentance is necessary. But let's just move forward. Now it came to pass, if there was no mistake made by this man in the reckoning of our time, that the 33rd year had passed away. So that's pretty clear, right? So how old, old is Jesus? So now we know that Christ is at least 33 years old based on a Hebrew Nephite calendar.
Because we're talking about here the time of his crucifixion. Yep, we're talking about his crucifixion. So we, we have an age that we know he's 33. Okay? Moving down to verse 5. And it came to pass in the 30th and 4th year, in the first month, on the 4th day. Now you've got to not make the mistake most people make right here. Most people assume the way we think. That now 34 years has passed. Well, that's not what it said. Because that's not the way they keep time. In the 34th year. That means after 33. So, so it's kind of like a baby, right? Right. When we when a baby is in, in their, their first, first year, then we don't say that they are one. We say that they are six months or, or three months. That first year is that whole beginning of the year to the end of the year. So the 34th year is the beginning of it. 34 and 33 to the end of where We're only a little bit into it. Yeah, it says right there. The 30th and 4th year in the first month on the 4th day. So really, we're only 4 days into it. It's the first month of 4th day. We're only 4 days. So really, he's 33 and 4 days old. At the sign of his crucifixion. Yeah. 33 and 4 days old. Now, you get that in your head, that he's 33 and 4 days old on a Hebrew calendar. And that just starts to unravel this whole idea that run around from a lot of people. Because now we know that at the earliest it could possibly be, if he's 33 years on top of 29, the beginning of 29, is it could, the crucifixion could have happened in 32. That's the earliest possible. Okay, now, I marveled and understood that the Savior spent about three years in his ministry. And we all kind of understand that just based on the Book of Mormon there a minute ago, where we see he was 33 years old and he started his ministry in Luke at age 30. It's, it's pretty obvious, pretty given, that his ministry was three years. So let's just, for discussion's sake, let's just take Passover in 32. Passover in 32 as his crucifixion date, if that was true, and we go back, which I have done here. I've actually stepped back and created so a calendar. So why, why did you pick 32? Because it's the earliest possible date. So it has to be 32 or 33, greater. Yeah, right? 32 or greater. Right. And so okay. we're, we're going to kind of look at 32 and see if it qualifies. Exactly. Okay. So if he was crucified in 32 on Passover, that means he was crucified on a Monday. And if he was crucified on a Monday, that means that the high Sabbath would have been Tuesday and the weekly Sabbath would have been Wednesday and the road to Emmaus would have been Thursday. Now, if that were true, there isn't a religion on the planet that's honoring, offering, honoring the right Sabbath. So, just <laughs> not, the, not the Arabs, not the Jews, not the Christians. We all got the Sabbath off. If it was a 32 crucifixion. Right, it was on, on a Wednesday or Thursday now, there. Um, just really quickly though, where did you get this calendar? This calendar I actually took and went back 2,000 times on Google and showed this calendar. <laughs> so believe it or not, I, I actually did that. Okay. This is a math guy to this. Okay. Actually, so that I could show actually, you this. Wait, it's you, actually a lot of work. You did it more than once. <laughs> Many times. <actually. laughs> to make sure that uh, you're right. And just you didn't because up. I always didn't take enough information when I was there, and so I had to do it again and again a couple of times. But anyway, so we now know that if it was 32, 
everybody's got the Sabbath off, number one, okay? In the history of the church, which slide we're showing you now, he actually tells us that on the third anniversary of the, of the church being established, that it is 1,800 years since the crucifixion. So on the third anniversary, he's nailing that his crucifixion was 33 AD, just so you know. So there's another So like reference. Joseph Smith knows stuff, right? Yes, like Joseph Smith knows stuff. But we also have <laughs> DNC section 20, which also says that he was um, born on the year zero, kind of, but technically there's no zero, so we know he was born 1 BC. And there's some people, I, I, I got to tell this story. I, I, I was too, ooh, this is a tender one. Just a little diversion here. I was at BYU and I was I was I just listened to a lecture on the book of John by an expert on the book of John and he he said that Christ was born in 3 or 4 BC and I just cursed the hair kind of stood up on the back of my neck and I uh, went up to him after the lecture and I said um, you know what do you you say he was born in 3 or 4 BC what do you do with Luke and the and reign of Tiberius yeah, Caesar. the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. And he turned to me and he said, well, we know Josephus was right, so Luke must have been wrong. So I'm just telling you that, um, well, number one, I'm going to go on to say he's misunderstanding Josephus, number one. And I proved that in Daniel Code 1, that it actually is misinterpretation of Josephus that gets you messed up. But that being said, I know what happened in my heart at that moment. I said, yeah, you say Luke's wrong. I say, you haven't looked deep enough because the truth of it is Luke was not wrong. <laughs> okay, it's very clear. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Anyway, moving and, on. And, and we always take scripture over opinion. Over opinion. Absolutely. Okay, so let's now jump forward to 33 A.D., in 33 AD, Passover was on April 3rd. April 3rd, 33. Now let's go to that date on a calendar. That puts Passover on Friday the 3rd. Guess what? It's the only thing the Catholics got right is Good Friday. Okay? They, they got the Good Friday correct. It's not the only thing they got right. Oh, yeah. But as, as far as the crucifixion and the resurrection, guess what? They, they, it's the only thing they got right is Good Friday. Okay, and then we know that if the 14th day of Nisan is Passover, that the 15th day is the first day of unleavened bread, and it is a high day. It's a high Sabbath. Okay, so we now know that the Sabbath they were rushing to get him off the cross for was the high Sabbath on the 15th of unleavened bread. And then the weekly Sabbath was Sunday the 5th, and the road to Emmaus is on Monday morning. Now, what I just said to you is, is actually revolutionary because there's hardly anybody that believes that, except for Joseph Smith. I actually go into this in much detail in whose Sabbath is Sabbath. So Passover, being on the 3rd of April, puts Passover on Friday. Lo and behold, that's the only thing the Catholics seem to get right, is Good Friday, because they don't take into account what, what we referred to as the Jonah Code, that as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
So that never worked as anybody explained it to me in the past, how he could be crucified Friday, off the cross on Saturday, and resurrected early Sunday morning. That is I not, remember thinking that that just doesn't work. Yeah, it just doesn't work. So let's just get this straight. The Sabbath he was taken off the cross for was a high Sabbath. It was the first day of unleavened bread. And then the weekly Sabbath took place the next day, which was Sunday, April 5th. And then he was resurrected early Monday morning on April 6th. Whoa, April 6th, he was reborn again. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. April 6th, 833 A.D. So that is the pattern that actually works. It follows Joseph Smith. It follows all of those things. The Book of Mormon. Yeah, the Book of Mormon, everything. But now, to the rescue, so you know I'm not pulling your leg. In John, he tells us that it's a high Sabbath. Therefore... The Jews, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. And then he adds this writer, for that Sabbath day was a high day. And that's why they besought Pilate to break their legs. It might be broken. It was not a weekly Sabbath. It was a high Sabbath. It was the first day of unleavened bread. And you talk about how the Nephi... Um, talks in his first chapters about the only way you understand prophecy is understanding the way of the Jews. Yeah, that's 2 Nephi 25. Yeah. So you have to understand the way of the Jews to understand the prophetic picture. But that he also goes on to say, but I haven't taught my children right, right. the ways of the Jews because the Jews got messed up on so many things. So he was very careful to, to not teach them the wrong things. And in the process, it's hard not to teach some of the right things if you're not teaching them the way of the Jews because you have to understand the prophetic appointments in order to understand these things. That's John 19.31. And then also if you want to if you want to kind of look that up and, and you're not familiar with these high holy days that become Sabbath days no matter what day of the week that they fall on you can review that in Leviticus chapter 23 where it talks about the seven prophetically appointed times and the seven days that will be Sabbaths, no matter when they fall. So even though Jesus was crucified on that Friday, they had to get him off the cross for the very first day of unleavened bread, which was a Sabbath day, no matter what day of the week it fell on. And then in that particular year, in 33 AD, the weekly Sabbath was the day after that. So that's, that's why, why the three days. That's why for three days and three nights. So that's kind of more explained in um, your video on our website. Who's Sabbath, Who's Sabbath, Sabbath. Sabbath, yeah. Anyway, let's just move on to modern revelation. So we know in modern revelation in DNC 59 that God's talking to Joseph and giving a revelation. And I'm just going to read it and you'll see how it parallels the Ten Commandments. Wherefore I give unto them a commandment, saying this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy might, might, and strength. And in the name of Jesus thou shalt serve him. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou shalt not steal, neither commit adultery, nor kill, nor anything like unto it. Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things. So we're obviously reiterating the significance of the Ten Commandments here in DNC 59. God is kind of like reinforcing that the Ten Commandments are absolutely in force. And with the Ten Commandments, we know 
that one of the commandments is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, correct? So, thou shalt offer us a sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in righteousness, even that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world. Thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. For verily, this is the day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay your devotions unto the Most High. Now, sometimes people generalize that and say he's only talking about the Sabbath in general. But if you take that possessively, for this is the day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay your devotions unto the Most High. And then let's just keep going. Nevertheless, thy vows shall be offered upon righteousness on all days and all times. But remember that on this, the Lord reiterates it, or revalidates it. Can I interject right here a little church history, what's going on here? Absolutely. Yeah, because what this is a spectacular day. I mean, everybody out in Jackson County, Missouri, has been waiting. The prophet, Joseph Smith, is actually coming to to Jackson County to get revelation on where the temple is to be built. And this is a a huge sacrament meeting that was held right when Joseph finally got to Missouri. And it, it was very special. They walked in the trees and and communed with the Savior personally at this time. So this, this wasn't just your normal Sunday meeting. This was a very special Sabbath Almost day. Almost a conference. Yeah. Okay. So... He reiterates it right here. But remember on this, the Lord's day, thou shalt offer thine oblations and thy sacraments unto the Most High, confessing thy sins unto thy brethren and before the Lord. And on this day, thou shalt do no other thing, only let thy food be prepared with a singleness of heart, that thy fasting may be perfect, or in other words, that thy joy may be full. So you have to ask yourself, what day did this revelation come? Well, she kind of gave a spoiler. But let's just read it. Revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith, August 7th, 1831. Now, you guys probably all see this coming already. But let me just show you on the calendar what day, August 7th, 1831 is. Because you went to Google and you went <laughs> Guess what? Joseph just revealed by revelation that Sunday is the weekly Sabbath. That actually, if you understand the way God dictates time, it's actually the eve to the morning of the first day, the eve to the morning of the second day. So the Sabbath, the true Sabbath, by revelation to Joseph Smith, by Daniel's numbers landing it, by church history landing the day of the crucifixion the last week of christ the last week of christ every avenue that you see shows us that christ honored sunday as his sabbath and that's a whole other our sunday yes our current sunday is the sabbath actually though let's correct it it would be the seventh day because monday sunday thursday (laughs) pagan names they're pagan names to to the to so what we're talking there's about a is, whole dialogue I can go into that I don't have time about how the Jews got off discussion for another day so now we've answered this when idea that it truly did happen in 33 AD on April the 3rd and that the resurrection happened early in the morning of April 6th that he was born and reborn 
on April 6th is quite significant just because just God likes doing those kinds of things. So we have to ask our next question. Where? Do you think this prophecy actually tells us where this crossover event takes place? Now I'm really jumping out there, aren't I? So let's just look. All these special events, all these supernatural victories over death, Sheen signifies the crushing and destroying. And Sheen also is the shorthand signature of God, the name that signifies divine ownership. All of these events, the tomb, all of these events that are prophesied, how do we know it's Jerusalem? How do we know it's supposed to be Jerusalem? Second Chronicles 6, 6. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Second Chronicles 33, 7. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. You think that's really true? The sheen, modern block Hebrew, is looks like that. In the valleys of Jerusalem, he actually placed the sheen over Jerusalem. And it gets better from here. Because not only did he put his seal of divine ownership over Jerusalem. So those are the three valleys around Jerusalem, right? Yes, correct. The three valleys around Jerusalem. Not only did he put his name on Jerusalem that way, but if you look from a satellite imagery, and look at the shadows as they lay over the mountains, you actually have the name of yod heh vav -Hey written right in the canyons and the valleys of the land of Israel. And you also have the name Ephraim written in the canyons and the valleys of Israel. This is just incredible when you think about it. This is so significant that God actually signed his name in the land. Well, not only that, but when you think about it prophetically, when did we have technology to look from space and see the shadows in the inkwells of shadow in the valleys of the mountains. This is in the age of only the last hundred years that we can look from space and it's see like the Daniel signature 12, of God. It's like he gave it to us in the last days. Yeah, it's kind of like Daniel 12.4. Knowledge shall be increased. We have an outpouring of knowledge in our day, and yet most of us miss it. We're too busy with our idol worship. <laughs> anyway, so now we've answered when and where. Where do we go from here? Well, we have to ask the question, what else? Bereshith. Does it offer more? This, this word that is the first word in the Bible? Well, of the first layer of the end from the beginning, I've kind of shown you. When we see all the events that are taking place on the earth right now, we see so many things happening. We see plagues, we see tornadoes, we see earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, wars, rumors of wars. We're told, you know, that's kind of the birth pains of the Savior coming. But I want to talk about Israel for a minute. I'm old enough to remember the Six-Day War. And I remember the excitement that my parents had when the Six-Day War took place and Israel got back Temple Mount. And 
as a child, I felt their energy about it. And it kind of spurred this drive in me to, to learn more about this country, Israel. And then also, about that same time, I was introduced the first time to Prophecy Key to the Future, and I became fascinated with prophecy. And I, I, I started thinking about that, but I, I'm trying to tell you that all these signs, before my parents were born, Israel didn't exist. So literally the very existence of Israel is a sign that the scriptures are being fulfilled. When we look at all of man's attempts to govern, anarchy, tyranny, democracy, ruled by man, socialism, ruled by the few, governed by judges and kings, and we see the efforts of man to extend his own life with robotics. We keep trying to shortcut the plan. We want to almost become cyborgs in order to live eternally instead of just having faith in God to do the same. So here's the question I, it begs. Why have all of our attempts to govern ourselves ended in ruin? Why have all of our attempts failed to create God's kingdom on earth? And the answer is really simple. We all need to pray and to yearn and create that mighty change of heart. There is no structure or no organization that can rule the ungodly without destruction. If we want to avoid destruction, we need to create a mighty change of heart within ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to get the broom. You know, we're going to get the broom. So when we use Isaiah 46 as our theme, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else, declaring the end from the beginning. When we talk about these things, I've just shown you the beginning layer, but let's keep going. Bear a sheet. So let's just do some review. The ancient pictorial Hebrew. The bet in or inside a home. Bet resh, sun, pronounced bar. Bet resh aleph, the creator, pronounced bara. Bet resh, excuse me, resh aleph sheen, the head person, prince, pronounced resh. So the son of God was in the house and the Son of God come out of the house, or out of his house. Why did he come out? Well, the why is now obvious. He came out of the house to perform the mighty work of his hand, and to be crushed. Now we have to make the question, will he come out again? Well, the next word within the word is Aleph Sheen. Aleph Sheen means the, the strong ox or the strong leader or the strong event being crushed. So this word is strong destruction. So is the earth going to experience strong destruction? Well, that word actually means fire. So we have 
a fiery layer of prophecy in Bereshit. And to get the timing on that event, we have the Yodshin. 10 times 300 equals 3,000 years. 3,000 years from that crossover event, the earth is going to experience a fiery destruction. At the end of the millennium, the world will end in fiery death and be reborn on the eighth great day. What is the eighth great day? It's the day after seven. It's the day after completion. It is a multi-level picture, numerically given us multiple beginnings, centered around our recreation in Gethsemane, and the cross, and the resurrection. And the final new beginning is the celestialization of the earth. So we are going to see that take place 3,000 years by the very word at the beginning from the crossover event. So when we see these destructions, we see the things going on, we need to take faith in the word because... So what is the crossover event? I kind of thought that was obvious, but... Yeah, I just, I just want to make it super clear. Christ on so, the cross. From 33 AD. Is the crossover event. So what I'm saying is that the celestialization of the earth, if you take the word of God literally, meaning precisely, and you take the word of God precisely, that the temporal existence of the earth is 7,000 years, then that places the celestialization of the earth in 30, 33 at the end of the millennium. At the end of the millennium. Just in case you didn't know that I'm speaking the truth, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto that fire against the day and judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. So in Peter, it's telling us there's going to be a fiery day. And in Second Peter 3.12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein... The heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. You know, I know a lot of people talk about global warming, but God's already told us there's going to be some major global warming at the end of the millennium. It's happening, but not the way they think it's going to happen. Okay? There's nothing we're going to do to make any difference in that scale. So I, I want to bring out real quick here in Second Peter in that same chapter in chapter 3, that is where in verse 8 it says, Be not ignorant that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years. It's right yeah, there in that same chapter. Yep. So he's kind of giving us the spoiler there. So now we know that the earth is going to have a fiery death at 3,000 years after the crossover event. Is there any other layer? Will the, will the sun leave his home one more time? Will he come out of his heavenly home? Well, you know, he said before he left, in my father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. So he's been gone a while. And if you've watched, or you should watch if you haven't watched, The Woman at the Well, if you see the accuracy in which God predicts things in scripture of the past to predict the future. It's pretty amazing how the two days that take place between his first coming and his second coming is pretty literal. 
So he's going to come out of his home one more time. And he's going to do another mighty work of his hand. And that was always in the plan. And why do we know that? Because it was in the beginning. It was Bereshit. So the Bereshit prophetic word is right there in the first word in the Bible. I just want to say, it, it just amazes me that it's not just in the Word, but the whole timeline was laid out with pictures and with gematria, and, and it was all... It was all there. Right there. So Christ's second coming is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you think it's in the Word? Is it in the Word, Bereshit? Let's look at Hosea 6.2. After two days he will revive us. In the third day he will rise us up. And we shall live in his sight. Right there he's telling us that two prophetic days he will raise us up again. Now who's he talking to? Israel. Hosea was a prophet to Ephraim. Yeah, Hosea was a prophet to Ephraim. So he's saying that two days this is all going to be and then I'm going to raise you up. So when? The Yod Resh. Ten being the multiplier and the rest being the Son of God equals 2,000. So 2,000 years after the crossover event, he's telling us when he's going to come again. But it's going to be after two days. But based on the temporal creation of the earth, kind of right after. <laughs> okay? Truly the end from the beginning. So when we say, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. It is literally in the word of the beginning, in the beginning, Bereshith. I want to just thank you that you have joined us for this very in-depth study of a single word, the very first word in the Bible, truly the end from the beginning. It's our desire to bring messages like this where it kind of just tells the story of where we are by what was. I'm looking so forward to it because like in the next lesson we're going to talk about the prophecy that was embedded in the names the first names of the ten patriarchs. There's a prophecy embedded. There's prophecy all over the Old Testament bearing witness of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. And the end and the beginning, in the next lesson after that, we'll even talk about how Genesis and Revelation are actually inverted parallels of each, of each, each other. The prophecies are, are the fingerprint of God. Absolutely. Is all over. This is this is our passion. And I've been asked, you know, why is this so important? Why do you care? Because you love numbers. <laughs> <laughs> She's saying because I love them. But that's really not the story. Why do I care? Is because I know we're headed into a time that we need to have the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Word of God sufficiently that we do not fear because we're headed into a time when the world is going to be filled with fear and with doubt 
and with question. And you need to know that you're in the mighty work of his hand, that you're in the palm of his hand, and it's going to be okay. That's why we teach that we might bless your lives, that you might have the faith you need to know he's got it. It's okay. God bless you.